And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Football Show. the Athletic Football Show. We have a fun show for you guys today. We're deviating a little bit from the typical Wednesday schedule. We're actually going to have Texans writer from The Athletic, Aaron Reese, on to talk about the Bill O'Brien news. Felt like we could not just let that go. Ted is going to be back with us next week. We're also going to be talking to Chris Burke, who's the Lions writer for The Athletic, to do our team visit for the week. But before we do any of that, I am now thrilled to welcome my friend, ESPN NFL analyst, Mina Kimes. Mina, how are you? Hi, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing great. We're recording this on Monday, just a heads up for people, because mm-hmm. you're on television 16 hours a day, so we need to <laughs> work around your schedule. We're recording it right before Patriots Chiefs kicks off. We're going to be talking about the NFC teams today. I was texting you about this when we were trying to figure out what we wanted to talk about on the show, and we both kind of decided that the NFC is absolutely wild. It's wide open. There are a ton of teams that are flawed but exciting. And we're going to break down those teams. We are not going to talk about the Packers because the Packers are about to play tonight and we don't want this to be outdated. But we are going to hit all of the other teams that have at least a 50% chance to make the playoffs, according to Football Outsiders. And there's plenty of them to get to. I and I'm really excited to watch the pack. I know this is like we're not going to talk about them, but I'm going to talk about them immediately. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Just because thus far, and of course, this could be immediately outdated. Through three weeks, they, I, I think, are also one of those many unbalanced, flawed teams. I'm actually, no Devontae Adams, no Alan Lazard tonight, but I'm actually more interested in watching the Packers' defense uh, against what is actually, you know, a, a fairly decent Atlanta offense because that that has been the issue for them. So we'll see. I think that's the truth for a lot of these teams, right? Yeah. So, And we're going to go through <laughs> all of them, but there's a lot of teams. You know, Nate has said it on our show on Sundays. The, the NFC feels like the Big 12 at this point. You have all these teams just throwing up tons of crazy points. Nobody can stop anyone. So that's going to be a consistent theme. And and why don't we get to one of those teams right now? Let's start with Mm. your Seattle Seahawks. So if you were just kind of pinpointing the number one flaw with the Seahawks through four weeks, I assume it would be the pass defense. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that would be my guess. No, it's actually Russell Wilson. Uh, Oh, yeah. He's he's had a rough year so far. (laughs) Uh, the absence, the entirely predictable lack of a pass rush has been concerning to say the least. That's sort of where I think a lot of the issue, the past defense, the coverage has kind of gone up and down week to week. Uh, different players have played better at different times or coming off a Miami game in which I thought the corners played pretty well. Shaquille Griffin had a really nice game. Uh, Benjamin Adams didn't play, but the pass rush has not been there at all. The Miami game is actually interesting, Robert, because Pete Carroll and Ken Norton Jr., they kind of adjusted their approach. This uh, Up till then, they had been blitzing like crazy. Obviously, Jamal Adams. the eighth highest the rate in the league, I think, through four games, which is kind of out of character for them. Massive departure from the way they usually play football, which is, you know, the standards Seahawks cover three, rush four that we know. Um, 
and they've been sending Jamal Adams, and not just Jamal Adams, they've been sending everyone a lot. And that changed this weekend against Miami. You went back to more just trying to keep the ball in front of them, um, you know, situational defense. And I, I think actually they did it with some success, quite frankly, but that doesn't, you know, solve the problem against better offenses. What do you, th- if you were kind of trying to build a case for how this could get better, you know, I know they've been a little bit dinged up. There are guys like Marquise Blair, obviously, that they're not going to get back. But if yeah. Quentin Denbark get healthy, Adams gets back, you get the players in the back end that you want take, having more snaps. But if you were trying to build a case for, all right, by December, this is how they could figure it out. What do you think needs to happen? Oh, uh, trade <laughs> for a passer rusher. That was kind of my question. You think that they probably need to look outside of the organization for some talent up front. Or hope that there'll be continued development internally. Um, Alton Robinson, a fifth-round draft pick out of Syracuse, who has actually made a couple of kind of big plays over the last couple of weeks. He had the, I don't know if he sacked or was a pressure on uh, Dak Prescott on that final drive. But he's had a couple moments uh, Collier's had actually LJ Collier was their first round draft pick from last year has had a couple of moments. And then Daryl Taylor out of Tennessee, who's an edge rusher. I really liked, uh, coming out of college. And I know a lot of people are smarter than me. Danny about, Kelly, big fan. I think, uh, Chris Long told me he really liked him. So that's a guy that I'm excited. He's been injured thus far and has not played yet. And they're thinking maybe after the bye, they'll get him back, but that's really it. I mean, the, I think the real answer is just continue to keep your foot on the gas pedal with the offense. And and that has been, uh, you, you've, I'm sure, talked about it a lot on this podcast. It's no secret, the let Russ cook movement. But it's not just about, you know, the the play calling and, and throwing more on early downs. Everything about the way Pete Carroll has approached this season, the aggression he's shown, suggests that he is aware he has a bad defense and is finally coaching like <laughs> it. Would you, if you had to lose one way, would you rather lose? <laughs> I'm, I'm just, it, it, this is, it, I've always, I always like to think about it this way because when you root for a defense that's kind of struggling and trying to find answers, you can try to push the agenda a little bit and send more bodies. So would you rather put, be a little bit shorthanded on the back end and be sending more bodies after the quarterback or live with a lack of a pass rush and be dropping eight? Which way would you rather be frustrated to watch your team? <laughs> I think I would rather, God, it's so, it's so team to really depends on the offense you're playing, honestly, because there's nothing, that's fair. There's nothing worse. And I, and I, and I've heard defensive players say this, there's nothing worse than sending wave after wave of pressure at a quarterback who, you know, is just going to slice you and dice you. Right. Ask Mike Um, Martindale. Yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I guess with Seattle, I think, the dialing it back a little bit was probably the right approach, frankly, and, and hoping that good things happen in the red zone. I think you want to fail as yourself, right? If you're going to fail, <laughs> yeah. go down as the team. It, just play the style. Yeah, ask Wink Martindale. <laughs> yeah, right, well, I, and that's why I kind of don't mind it. And if them doing it that way and failing, I that's why I kind of don't mind it. Because it's like, all right, this is what we do. And I think that if you're the Seahawks playing the way that you're comfortable playing, there are enough guys on that defense that have been there for a little while. I don't necessarily blame them for like, let's say, all right, we're going to play the way we played. And if we can't get a pass rush, we'll figure the rest out. So I think that makes sense. All right, let's get to the Cowboys who, I mean, it's not just the pass defense. It's just defensive ineptitude all the way around. Is there anything that has jumped out to you in particular about that unit? That's surprising. We knew coming into the season that the talent wasn't going to be very good, but are there guys that you thought would be playing better than this that just aren't? 
Yeah, I think it's more the front seven because we the secondary one that they've been horribly banged up. You knew they were transitioning to a new system under defensive coordinator Mike Nolan, right away from they had the Seattle system under Chris Richard before uh, the very simplistic cover three defense, and they've gone more multiple. Although when you watch them, it's it's really just like execution stuff. Half the, I mean, some you see blown coverages and miscommunications, but half the time they're just not executing. But th- those are players we knew or thought weren't going to be good. I think the biggest disappointment for them has to be up front. It's your Demarcus Lawrence's who who's banged up to be fair or Everson Griffin, who they were hoping to get some juice from or like a Tyrone Crawford or Jalen Smith is kind of public enemy. Number one in Dallas right now. I think it's seeing those players struggle to get to the quarterback or in, in Jalen Smith's case, you know, tackle, frankly, um, that has to be most disappointing for Cowboys fans because those are players you are paying real money to. The Jalen Smith thing is bizarre. I mean, he didn't play well last year, but going back and watching him, I watched a little couple of play. I watched the Seattle game today again. And then I watched a little bit of the Cleveland game again. He's playing with this weird chaotic energy. And I don't mean that in a good way. When guys are playing slow and they're not getting to the spot they want to get to, you think, oh, they hurt or whatever. He's bouncing between gaps before plays start. He's crossing Joe Thomas's face before plays start. It just feels like he has no idea where he's supposed to be, and he's almost compounding the problem with how jittery he's playing. I can't remember watching a guy kind of devolve like this without any sort of serious injury in a span of two years the way that he has. Right, he's ostensibly gotten you know healthier as time's gone by. Yeah. I guess, yeah. I mean, just the, the absence of Leighton Vander Esch seems to have like stunted his development in some way. I mean, what's his name? Um, the other linebacker, Joe Thomas. <laughs> he was better. On that. I, mean, I wrote that down a few times on Sunday. I mean, I, I, I don't. You asked me about like a pathway for Seattle to get better. Um, so it seems like nobody wants to sign Earl Thomas. Uh, so that. Uh, you know, for off the field reasons, because yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Clearly. I mean, safety wise, you cannot get worse than what Dallas has done. Like the DB stuff, the the corners are, that's forgivable. And like Ouzier is coming back. Right. But those safeties, I mean, Darian Thompson, I think he got benched, but they're, they're terrible. So as far as a pathway to getting better, shoot, man. Um, it's, it's really similar to Seattle. Like you're just going to hope that that I here's the answer for this Cowboys defense. Pray that the offense stops turning the ball over. That's your fix. That's been the, we talked about that on yesterday's show. Me and Nate did about some of the kind of underlying issues. Their turnover rate is one of the highest in the league. They get, they're giving teams the third best field position in the NFL to start drives. And Not the again. offensive pace is ridiculous. I mean, it's absolutely crazy how fast they're playing and, how many plays they're on the field. So all of that stuff could be better. You know, they came in kind of middle in the road. They're four, they're 29th in EPA per play, but they're 14th in success rates. So they're getting crushed by big plays. I, I think that it's a problem, but it might not be as much of a problem as it might seem on the surface, just because of, again, how fast they're playing everything else. Yeah. I, going back, I think that the, the coverage, bone coverages, the complexities, all of that stuff, it's worth exploring. They looked better, especially against the Seahawks, when they were show either bringing pressure or showing pressure looks and playing man behind it. Because it's just kind of our guys against your guys. And at this point, it feels like that might be the way to go. Because, and the, I mean, think about a couple of plays that Seattle hit deep. They were in quarters, which turns into man, and they didn't know what they were doing. It feels like guys are just yeah. so confused and playing so slow. 
maybe even simplifying it and saying, we're going to play man, we're going to blitz a little bit more because the pass rush isn't working. I don't know. Just try to change it up somewhat because whatever they're doing right now just clearly isn't working. I think what's also, you're absolutely right about, I think what's disheartening from a, for a Cowboys fan is they've worked worse every game. Yeah. Too. Again, injuries factor into that, right? But it, like they didn't look that bad in the Rams game. Uh, week one, they weren't especially great. considering what the Rams have done since. Yeah, the Rams offense, offense looks is, so good. Yes, that offense is a freaking buzz. I mean, they weren't on you know Sunday, but by and large, they've been a buzzsaw. And it's like every game they've looked worse, which is really disheartening. So I went back and I watched. Are you worried at all about the offense? Because I know the numbers, the raw volume numbers <sighs> are crazy. But we're t- like, think about the plays. They're seventeenth in EPA per play right now on offense. Their numbers, if you dig a little bit deeper, have not been that impressive. And when I ask you that question for two reasons. One, are you worried about the right tackle thing? Because I think that's a team that might have to make a move. Like, why isn't Dallas just calling the Bills right now and saying, we'll give you a fifth round pick for Ty Maseki? Um, Who did they stay? They started Terrence Steele. Terrence Steele. He, I think I beat out Cam Irving. And then they benched him at some point, I believe. Am I wrong in this game? <laughs> there was so much he happening. Was, he was dinged up. And then I know Zach Martin played against Seattle. Sick, They've had so many way. things going on. But I don't think that making himself right worse. But that's the thing. Should he? Because you take the best right guard in the league and make him play right tackle. I just feel like that's a team that because of the window, right? You have Dak for one year guaranteed. He's on, a, on the franchise tag. Mm. This is a team that absolutely can make the playoffs. Naseki's in his, the last year of his contract, he's not starting for the Bills. That would be the type of move I think would make sense for them because it's on their timeline. They have the money to do it, and he's in the last year of his deal. It's a half-a-year rental. Let me ask you a question. Turn on you a little bit. Um, a lot of the rookie offensive linemen have been awesome this year. I was thinking about that. We were talking about the Bucks today, and I was talking about Tristan Wirfs, right? Who's been – when was he picked? 13? 14th, I think. Yeah. Okay. No, because I think they might have traded up for him. I think you're right. So he was picked before CD Lamb. But that said, do you think if you're Dallas and you're doing it all over again, do you take CD Lamb? Yes. Because I'm I a agree. big fan of building the best offense possible. I, I think it, BPA, yeah. He's great. I mean, he's been fantastic for them. And if you look at some of the biggest plays they've hit on offense, he's, it's been the result of him. I'm disappointed in the offensive line play, and that's been the result of injuries and Collins being gone for the year, obviously. But also, when I watch this offense, it's kind of underwhelming when you think about what it looks like schematically. It's, it's static to me. They're doing a lot of things like they did last year. More stop routes than I envisioned with Garrett gone. Almost no motion at all. I think they're in the bottom yeah. five in the league, which I understand some teams don't do that. You want to be able to see the defense. You want to create information that you can kind of process before the snap happens. Some teams like to do that. But it is, I don't like how stayed the offense feels. Even though they're putting up tons of numbers, it just resembles too much of the stuff they were doing under Jason Garrett for me. I, I was just about to, to say, yeah, forget last creativity. year. There are times, yeah, there are times it reminds me of uh, 2018 and 2017. Our guy be your guy. Let's go. And they've got awesome guys. So they are beating them, uh, especially like when they're playing, when teams play man coverage against them. But it, it does feel woefully insufficient um, given sort of the, the, what we were promised, what we were in, in the lies that we were fed about how innovative it would be. I know it's this is simplistic, and I probably go to this well too often, but I just want to see them do more. St- like, think about Dak and the Rams' offense. 
all those crossing routes, all the deep, like the second level throws that he's so good at making, he hit one to Lamb against the Seahawks. Where I was like, God, he, that's just such a pretty ball. And they just, they're not doing that much play action. They're not doing that much stuff that tends to prop up a quarterback. They're just asking him to do so much again. And it frustrates me to watch this offense with the amount of talent they have, not doing everything they can to get the most out of it. Heck, even Seattle. Again, I, I was talking about the early down play calling and the aggression, but I don't think enough credit has been given to Brian Schottenheimer, who has been actually using a lot more motion and doing and some of the play calling has been really creative especially in the red zone this year um like i as we talk about these nfc teams and you think about uh a green bay we're not talking about green bay that offense has been a joy to watch absolutely uh, forget i know rogers is playing out of his mind and whatever but the play calling has been straight ripped out of mcveigh shanahan playbooks this year and, and so, you know, like you look at these teams and you're like, wait, hey, well, maybe the defense sucks, but the offense is really good. And I think what's so frustrating about Dallas is, yes, they fall into that category, but the offense is being stunted in some ways. And they need it to be so good because the defense be so is good. bad. You, it's almost one of those things that, you know, the being a middle of the road defense, being a top 10 defense even is not enough with how bad their offense, their defense is playing. And yeah. they just, that the ceiling on this team is so much higher. And that's just why I, I want to see them try to tweak some stuff on both sides of the ball. I want to ask you about the Saints. If you were kind of stacking the concerns you might have about the Saints, what do you think is number one? What do you, what do you mm. want to see from them? What, what improvement would you want to see from them moving forward that you think is most crucial to them kind of being the team they want to be? I think the defense is... I think so, too. Yeah, because the offense... So so on Sunday, I think we saw the best iteration. Like, that's the most you can hope for. I've been really hard on Drew Brees this year, and I think there's, like, a misinterpretation sometimes of the criticism of Brees that it's all about air yards. Like, dude wasn't thrown a deep last year. The difference was he was deadly accurate, short and intermediate, and you saw that Drew Brees, right, return... On, he doesn't need to throw it 20 plus yards if especially if Thomas is in the game and obviously Kamara. So if 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 and 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 it's no promise that Drew Brees is going to look like he did Sunday because we the Drew Brees we saw weeks 1 2 3 is probably going to return and it's probably going to be up and down and they're doing the best they can with that. And I think it, if he does look like he did Sunday, they can win games and that, that offense is good. But the defense like has been such a disappointment, in particular the past defense. Like going into the season, Robert, when I do my prep team by team, I go through the depth charts. And when I did the Saints defense, I was shocked by how deep they were. I was I was like, this defense is gonna be awesome. They're they have potential to be top five in the NFL. They're so deep at every level. And they have not played anywhere close to the talent level, um, especially in the secondary. So I, I think they, they should get better. They have the ability. They've, they've all, all those players have played better. They're just not playing well right now. It's crazy that the yes, last week or Sunday was probably their best performance and they didn't have a lot of more. They were more banged yeah. up than they've been and they were playing better. You look at it, they're 28th in the NFL in EPA per dropback. They're behind the Cowboys. It's, it's shocking. You just expected so much more of this group coming into the year. And I'll be curious to see what it looks like moving forward because with them, the talent is not a question. They have so many guys on that team that are pro bowl to all pro caliber players. Marcus Williams hasn't played well. Lattimore, when he was playing, wasn't playing very well. So that I have faith for it working out. I made a weird observation today. I don't know if you've noticed this at all. So holding penalties are down 40% across the league. Right. 
which I think it's probably a directive from the NFL. O- offensive holding. Off- offensive holding penalties. And I think that, that it's probably a directive from the league just to make sure the quality of play is up there. And I think guys like Cam Jordan are suffering because of that. I think power rushers that are trying to play through people just can't affect the game quite as much. And the Saints defensive line is made up of those guys. They're all pocket pushers. They're all like 275 pound defensive linemen. So I wonder if that's affected them at all. Because I've watching that game again against the Lions, it seemed like Jordan was getting grabbed and I, I need to watch a little bit more, but that's something to keep an eye on. I don't think their line is built to survive in a league that's kind of letting that stuff go. That's an interesting play, a point about Cam Jordan because he 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 gets doubled a lot. I don't have, I think I was pulling the rates at which guys, every now and then I like to um, grab ESPN tracks, pass rush win rate and that kind of thing and, and looks to see who, which guys are winning against double teams. Um, and I... I'm always like interested in seeing who's getting doubled a lot. Like Jadavion Clowney always gets doubled a lot. Um, and I'm not sure where Jordan falls, but I think well, I love Trey Hendrickson. I think he's like, but I love him as like an underrated he's player. He's your third pass rusher. <laughs> you know? When, when Davenport yeah. is playing, Trey Hendrickson's a great little piece to drop in there. When he, you're having to rely on him, it's different. I think the lack of Davenport this season has hurt them. But, you know, I, on the whole, I don't think the pass rush is the problem. Like, I don't think, I don't think so either. It's been, it's not been great. And of course the run defense is still very good. Um, it's, it's the coverage, you know, like I, God, I, I mean, every, it, it's weird because too, every game, it's someone different. Like one game I'll be like, wow, Malcolm Jenkins, Jesus. And then the next game I'll be like, Ooh, Marcus Williams, what happened? You were so good. Or Lattimore. Like it, it, it really is bouncing or Jenkins, whatever. Oh. And then, um, you know, penalties i mean god like at this point it's 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 not a random thing it's it's not a random thing with this team it's how they play and and that's what i'm wondering about it's just like okay the the penalties the fact that it's bouncing around from guy to guy that's why it feels like all right maybe they can get this together because it's right. not as if you have one weak link that's going to keep tearing you down it just feels like it's a matter of inconsistency what i did like i, I went back and i watched the detroit game today and they were doing this weird look where they would have a three-man line and they'd have Davis and Anzalone kind of walk down into the A-gaps in like a mug look, and then one would come and one would drop out. That's the type of creative problem solving I like to see from defenses that are struggling. It's like, okay, we don't know exactly what we're doing well, exactly what we're not. Let's try to be a little bit confusing. Let's throw some shit against the wall and see what sticks. And they were getting a lot of production out of that look. So I have faith in this defensive staff and the players on that side of the ball to figure it out just because we've seen it happen with this team before. So many years where it's like, oh man, what's going to happen with the defense? And by the end of the year, you're looking at it and they're eighth in defensive DVOA. Usually, right. It's like weeks one through two, they're just awful. And then they figure it out. I think it just was weird because they're so talented this week and played at such a high level at the end of last season that it's perplexing. And there they were the, you know, every off-season podcast we did, it was continuity, continuity, continuity. And the Saints were the team everyone pointed to on both sides of the football as being the continuity team other than Kansas City. Like, this is why we like the Saints. So then... To have them bring back all again, they don't have Davenport, but like there are teams with worse injuries, and then to play like this poorly, I, it's just very surprising. How, when do you think the takes are going to start to come out about the Saints skipping the offseason being the reason that they're not playing well? <laughs> uh, this is would it be one more loss? Is it two? Uh, who are they playing next week? Because that'll that'll be if they lose to someone. The Chargers, Chargers are Chargers are feisty, and it's on Monday night, so feisty. national spotlight. That absolutely could happen. I mean, after what Justin Herbert did, he's liable to light up anybody at this point. This is 
going to be a big breeze air yards game. I feel like. So let's, let's get to the Rams, a team that, you know, you've spent a lot of time looking at a lot. You've been around them. You know them very well. If you had to pick out where you think the weak point of this Rams team is, what would you say? Because it's not necessarily obvious. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're playing much better in areas I thought they'd struggle in. Yeah, right. Like um, linebacker and offensive line were the biggest question marks coming into the season. And I think both of those have been much better than expected. Um, I think, God, if we had recorded this one week ago, I feel like my opinion would be pretty different. Because... Uh, it, you really, it felt like Jared Goff was not only playing at the level he did in 2018, where he was kind of operating Sean McVay's offense to perfection, but also I, in that Bills game, uh, was making throws under pressure, throwing it in, lasering it into tight windows, which has always been the question, can Goff, you know, when when he has to drop back and become a drawback passer, can, can he make throws? And I... It, so I think I, I'm still not 100% sold that we're going to see that guy consistently. Um, so I would say that's going to be that's going to oscillate over the course of the season, depending on God who they're playing. But they just play the Giants, and then I do think um, I think linebacker is going to be an issue for them sort of throughout, frankly, a bunch of teams who punted on linebacker, but they're one of those teams. The middle of the defense worries me more than anything associated with Goff. Even yesterday, there was some, th- like, Cooper Cup had a weird drop early in the game. There were a couple throws yeah. kind of outside the numbers on deep crossers that he's hit that he didn't, but it was, it, it's not as if it was a, a nightmare. It was just a couple inches off where you need to be pinpoint with those throws, and he has been. I, I was a little bit concerned and a little bit confused about why they went away from Henderson in the passing game yesterday. When you're struggling to move the ball, I why not give your quarterback some layups to a guy that can't be caught in the open field? That was a little bit weird. That's true. Yeah, and he's been so good in that role, which was a role that disappeared altogether last season, and they brought back, and it's been sort of one of these new fun sort of wrinkles that have kind of, I think, advanced the McVay offense. I would also say one more thing. The offensive line, like if, if someone – if there's injuries, I think that would be an, an issue of concern for, for me. Sure. They're not deep anywhere. I mean, they, they can't really afford an injury no. in any spot. I mean, safety maybe because they brought wrap off the bench after wide four. receiver. Yeah, I mean, receiver. Yeah, yeah it, but it's but I, I'm worried about the middle of the defense. And I think that there were, but the defense has still played pretty well. They didn't play well against the Bills, but I went back and watched that game. It, it's almost mean that Dable was hitting oh McVay with McVay stuff because the, the, the play first, action ball. The long throw to Gabriel, to Gabriel Davis early in the game was that deep corner, deep crosser route crosser, that every Shanahan yeah, team runs. And then he ran leak yesterday against the Raiders. Just copping McVay plays left and right. I mean, the Bills are doing everything <laughs> right. So it's, I think it's okay to struggle against them because they're completely dialed in. So I, I think right now you could make an argument that the Rams might be the most complete team in the NFC. The other contender in that conversation is probably the Bucks. Yeah, Where yeah. would you even say the Bucks' biggest weakness is right now? I think that well, they, the receiving group has been banged up. So, and obviously they just lost to OJ Howard, which I think is actually a sneaky big loss. It's a sneaky football loss, but people that only care about fantasy football are not going <laughs> to notice it. So that would be a thing. I think at times their past defense shows its youth. I would say that the secondary would probably be the other issue. They're so good in the trenches, though, on both sides of the football. I, that was what I went on today with the Bucks. I, I just 
I was really impressed by Tristan Wirth yesterday, and we talked about how good the offensive line was. And, of course, it's the Brady thing where he's going to make your offensive line look great because he gets the ball out so quickly, and you know, defenses are afraid to blitz him. And, and Arians use a ton of play action, um, and obviously that helps as well. But they're, they're just playing really well. That whole group is playing super well. So you say that. Do you know what percentage of Brady's dropbacks he's using play action on this year is? Is it not high? I felt high yesterday. 16%, which is 31st of 34 quarterbacks. That was a God. It felt like yesterday he was taking a ton of shots off PA. It's it's because it's working. So he's averaging 11.6 yards per attempt, which is the fourth highest mark in the league. And that's, I'm watching it. That's what I'm curious about with the offense. Because if you look at Arians' offenses historically, you'd think, because they market themselves as this deep shot, play action, yeah. max protect offense, they've been down near the bottom of the, not near the bottom of the league, but in the back half of the league, everywhere he's been. They tell you, anyone you talk to, you talk to Bruce, he'll be like, oh yeah, we love shots. We love play action shots. Mm. And they don't take as many of them as you think they would. Brady's numbers were high, way higher in, in New England. That, that was the thing that jumped out yesterday too. It's like they needed to go down to start attacking. And once that happened after the pick six and the touchdown for the half on Sunday, not yesterday, sorry. Um, they started attacking vertically and Brady's arm is fine. Like I, I, I said this last year too, and it drove me crazy when going into the season, that was such the question. Well, is Brady, can Brady attack down? Well, New Kansas City's, settle for a field goal uh can uh brady attack downfield and this and that brady can attack downfield the problem is and this was the problem in new england his aging curve it's not about him getting a noodle arm like breeze it's that um he doesn't move the way he used to in the pocket and and the standard is high with him because he was probably the best navigator pocket we've ever seen in nfl history that's why it's so important that that bucks offensive line is playing as well as they are because when he's clean back there, good night. I mean, th- that offense is incredible. I want to see them try to use a little bit more of his influence. I would love to see that play action percentage tick up by 10 percentage points. And because when yeah. they run it, they've been excellent. And he's been so good at it over the course of his career. And that's on the, on the offensive side. I think you're right. I think the offensive line's playing really well. I want to see the convergence of the stuff Brady likes and what that offense looks like with the personnel they have. If they get Godwin back, Evans gets a little bit healthier. I think they still have enough depth to tight end, even without Howard. I think that side's going to be fine. The defense, I think you're exactly right. Their front seven is dominating people. They're just so aggressive that I think that that youth in the secondary is going to leave them vulnerable to some big plays. It's exactly what we saw against the Chargers. You have guys playing way too downhill. They're just out of position, eyes in the backfield. I think that guys like Sean Murphy bunting and uh, Carlton Davis is leading the NFL in penalties, I think, right now. So they're aggressive. That's how they play, and I think that it benefits them in a lot of ways, but there are drawbacks, and I think we've seen that kind of pop up a little bit here. But through the first four weeks, I mean, Aaron Schatz tweeted it today. They're going to be number one in team DVOA four weeks into the season, and when you watch them play and you kind of think about where their weaknesses and strengths are, that actually makes sense to me. That's interesting. Yeah, they... I think they're uh, better than the Saints, frankly, which I didn't think coming into I, in, coming into the season. I thought they would be uh, the Saints would be better at the beginning, and that the Bucks would be one of those teams that looked better at like in December. They would be the best team, and the fact that they look this good now to me should be terrifying to the rest of the NFC. So, if you had to pick one team right now that you think by the end of the year, if I were betting on it, this is going to be the most complete team, which would you say? Probably Tampa. 
because complete. Yes. Complete. Okay. So how about how about scariest? If, if you if you take in, <laughs> if you take into account their ability to kind of make up the deficits that they have or improve on the weaknesses that uh, they have, if you were making a bet, who would you think? All right, by December, this is the team I would least want to play. You can say the Seahawks. It's okay. Well, I think it's the Seahawks or Green Bay, and I'm you know just because I think those two offenses are absolute buzzsaws right now. Now the problem with Green Bay is they are. I I, I think. We've seen that the pass casher concern was overblown, but they're really down to, you know, their last, I mean. Tonight will be a test for sure. (laughs) What's it? Malik Turner, who I think was on the Seahawks practice squad at one point or the other, I believe is. You can make uh, up 10 different names that I would not believe you that they were actually Packers receivers. But but, man, LaFleur's been so good at like using Tyler Irvin and Shanahan in ways. And it's really fun, but you do have to have some professional receivers. So I, I think. Like I said, Green Bay and Seattle, those offenses have just been such nightmares that they almost scare me more, um, even though the defenses are worse, frankly. But that, but that's just, you know, they, both Rodgers and Wilson cannot both sustain that level of offense. I think it's historic, frankly, for both of them through all, you know, all, all, the entire season, so... I, those are my two. Can I, I, is that, is that okay? A two way tie? That's I, totally think those fine. Are, I think those are the three best teams in the NFC. What about you? I think I'd probably say by the end, Green Bay only because I think that if your defense is going to be bad, at least be able to cause havoc. Yeah, they have and playmakers. Yeah. They're playmakers and pass rushers. Their pass rush has not found its groove yet because Kenny Clark has not been playing. You know, then they've been using Preston. I actually talked to Preston Smith last week, and they're only rushing him like sixty percent of the time, probably because they're trying to be a little bit more complex defensively because they're not confident in their ability to cover people right now. But I think if you just let those guys line up and play, and you have a true number one corner in Jay Alexander, even if you have weaknesses elsewhere on the defense, I just think you can create enough big plays, not dissimilar to what happened with the Chiefs last year. It's like, all right, they have issues, but in they're, I think they're better coordinated than the Packers are. But having one or two playmakers just on that team that can swing a game for you, that's why mm-hmm. I like Green Bay, just because you have Darius Smith, you have Jerry Alexander. Let's see if we can get one or two turnovers and have that be what carries us. Yeah, you say that, but then Seattle's going to trade for, uh, I don't even know. <laughs> I have not identified a, an edge rush trade target, but. Uh, that's the best part about the Seahawks, though, is he could literally do anything. <laughs> there, he, that is, it's a franchise that is willing to just you know, roll the dice. And that's why I think that it's going to be an interesting second half of the season because all it of these, and yeah. the Seahawks probably saw it before the year even started with the Jamal Adams trade. It's like, all right, we can do this. We are absolutely in a position to take command here. And I think anybody in the NFC that we just talked about, could probably say the same thing. All right, Mina, yep. we're going to go watch some Monday Night Football. Thank you for doing this. I know you're extremely busy. It's always good to talk to you and get your insights. So go enjoy the games, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Talk to you soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, 
all the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. For their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash maze, all lowercase, Go to shopify.com slash maze now to grow your business, no matter which stage you're in. Shopify.com slash maze. We're going to do a special segment today because there's no way we can go an entire week without addressing the Bill O'Brien firing in Houston because it's one of the most shocking pieces of NFL news that I can remember when you consider everything that's happened there in the past year and a half. So now I'm joined by our good friend, Texans writer Aaron Reese. Your second appearance on the show, Aaron, you're really just stacking them up here which i appreciate yeah i know who would, who would have thought when i was on on week one or after week one that i would be back so soon <laughs> but things have changed quite quickly so i am shocked that you're back so soon and that's part of why yesterday was just so jarring to me i didn't even think this was a possibility and, and it's not when the team is zero and four you probably always should consider it a possibility but when you consider what's happened over the past year and how much power he had consolidated in Houston when you consider the fact that he was the GM, he was the head coach, he was making all the personnel decisions. I never even thought this was on the table uh, months after he traded away DeAndre Hopkins and handed out all those extensions and everything else. So first of all, are you surprised that this happened when you look back at the last month of Texans football? Well, you forgot one role. He was also the offensive coordinator. Essentially, oh, thank you. Last week. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's a very long resume. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I, w- I was surprised for a lot of the same reasons you indicate. Like, uh, if you're going to, if Cal McNair, the owner, team CEO, chairman, all those things, you know, he signed off on them making all these moves. And I think anyone who was kind of even half paying attention could have known that the team was going to be worse, at least in the short term. And the way they sold the idea of trading DeAndre Hopkins was that they were going to be, um, a more sustainable contender this way because they weren't going to be so top heavy. That's what we talked about last time I was on the show. That was the whole vision, right? Um, so by, by that that idea, they probably 0-3 was probably somewhat expected given who they started against. And then you lose one game to the Vikings that, yeah, you probably should win. But at the same time, like it should that have been such a referendum on Bill O'Brien given that you signed off on this dude doing all these things? It just makes you kind of wonder like what exactly Cal McNair was really expecting to happen, what he really thought this was going to look like. And I think calls into question like how much confidence you should really have that the Texans can actually fix this despite the fact they've gotten um, the biggest monkey off the back by firing O'Brien. Do you think that the ground had shifted at all within the building, whether it's with how Cal McNair was interacting with Jack Easterby, how Easterby and O'Brien were kind of getting along? It feels like there had to be some sort of shift that's happened because I don't know how you can think this is the guy that's going to guide our franchise and then a month into the season, this is a guy we want to fire if something hasn't drastically changed. Right, exa- exactly. I mean, I, this the whole kind of... S- story of Texans football in the past two or however many years has been a series of power struggles, right? I mean, Bill O'Brien wins a power struggle um, with Rick Smith, and then he wins another one with Brian Gain, and he keeps consolidating power. Um, 
And now, you know, he, Jack used to be out last him here. And so he's going to be kind of influential in what they do moving forward. You know, he had his hand in a lot of different departments uh, before expanding the analytics staff, the one negotiating a lot of these contracts that have the Texans in the position they're in. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a little, it's really surprising because they've talked so much about how they're in lockstep and they were all kind of on a united front on all these much criticized things they're doing. So again, you fire the coach and that addresses the one thing, but you still have this guy who was around for all these things who kind of signed off and, and thought they were smart moves in Jack. And I'll be interested to see kind of what his role is moving forward here. It's amazing to me that we've just handed an NFL franchise to Jack Easterby when you consider his background and his ascension and everything else, because that's where we are. Cal McNair is in his first little stretch here as the principal decision maker for the Houston Texans. And Jack Easterby is, correct me if I'm wrong, the highest ranking member of the football staff now. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. No, that's that's correct. It, it is, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it is quite crazy. And and I think what's interesting is again, what 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 kind of is the role Jack is going to have as they make more of these decisions, right? Because whatever head coach they're going to bring in is probably going to have some say over personnel, if you would imagine. So that calls into question how involved Jack is going to be in personnel. He was obviously again the one who kind of helped build this team with Bill. Um, and and if they bring in another GM, does what role does Jack have in that? You know, is he kind of l- lurking over this person's shoulder? So. I, I will be very curious how kind of this all shakes out. You know, there's no certainty they're going to hire a new GM necessarily, but they're definitely going to have to hire a new coach. And what is that new coach's demands going to be? Um, what are Jack's demands going to be? And how, how is that all kind of going to influence the list of people they consider? So when you're thinking about where this goes from a personnel standpoint, beyond who they hire, just on the, from the team. So you have J.J. Watt on the wrong side of 30. He has no guaranteed money left on his deal. Watson, Tonsil, that core will probably be there for a while. And we could talk about the next coach in a second. I think that the Watson presence is going to be a luring factor for whoever they consider. Do you think they try to trade Watt to get some of that draft capital back? How do you think the roster shifts here between this year and next year as you consider, all right, now we need to kind of replenish our entire stable of resources because we don't have any? No, yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. I've, I've thought about Watt uh, even before all this happened, just because he's in kind of an interesting situation of um, he didn't want to sign a new extension during the offseason. He made that clear to lower his cap hits. He has no more guaranteed money, like you mentioned. And, you know, these past game, uh, these past four weeks, every week he seems a little more like he got run over by a bus. Uh, in his post-game zooms, he just looks totally miserable. And you know these problems with this roster are not um, short-term fixes. So is he going to want to even like stick this out? Are they going to maybe do right by him and try to trade him if that's what he wants to do and go to a contender? He really is kind of the only tradable asset they have. You know, I mean, a lot of they have other veterans who could be impactful players on the right team, but uh, not at, at, at contracts that other teams would necessarily want. You know, I think Bernardrick McKinney, maybe you could trade him. You already have Zach Cunningham. He has no more guaranteed money left on his deal. But, like, how much are you getting back in return for Bernardrick McKinney? So, J.J. Watt is about it. And even in J.J. Watt's case, you're trading him for one more year in his current contract. No guarantee that he's necessarily going to, uh, you know, stay healthy for the whole season. And from the Texans' perspective, that's kind of weird optically giving up on, uh, you know, like the franchise icon. So, you're sitting here. Right now, they have $190 million in liabilities for next season. The cap floor is going to be $175 million. You're paying Watt $17.5 million, Tunsil $19.4 million, Whitney Merciless is making $12 million. Jesus. That's David Johnson's making $9 million. That's the worst one of them. <laughs> Watson's making $16 million. You can cut some of these guys. Johnson, I assume, will not be on the roster. We'll see what happens with Watt. You can get out from under a lot of these deals. Financially, the cap is fake. We all know that. Whatever. 
The draft pick stuff is interesting to me. So where are they sitting with draft picks? They obviously don't have their first round pick because they gave it away in the Tunsil deal. They don't have their second round pick either, correct? Correct. That's the Cooks deal? No. They, so they don't have the first or second this year, both to Miami. Uh, so Miami has to be hoping that, you know, they just totally crater. The the Cooks pick, I believe, if I, if I have this right, the Cooks second round pick was, yeah, it, it turned into Van Jefferson. That's the one they traded. Well, that was for this year. Um, so that that looks great because Cooks didn't have a catch against the Vikings. Uh, he's another guy, though, when you talk about the cap, that probably something is going to happen with him. He has no more guarantee yes. money left on his deal. That was kind of the allure to them trading for him was he was a higher impact player than a rookie, but he had more flexibility and they could renegotiate his deal down after this year. And, you know, that might happen and maybe you get him at a reasonable price because I think the pandemic is going to impact free agency. But if you don't sign him and you just traded a second round pick for him, that's awful. That's absolutely terrible. And that is the problem here is that whoever you're trying to talk to as the new GM or the new head coach of this team, you're bringing them to a situation that's completely resource deficient considering the contracts they've handed out and the trades that they've made. We talked when you were on this show a few weeks ago about the lack of talent and ascending players on this roster because of how many quick fixes they tried to make. So if you're thinking about the guys they're going to try to bring in, whether it's a GM or a head coach, what would your pitch be to a prospective candidate about why they should want to take this job? From a head coaching perspective, I think you would say that, you know, you have an amazing quarterback already. Uh, Tunsil is a top five left tackle. He's he, They're both locked in long term. If you're a really bright offensive mind like Eric Bianami or, or, you know, Brian Dabble, that they can they have those pieces in place to make a really good offense. And we all know that the most efficient, an efficient offense is the best way to be a sustainable contender, right? So they at least have that in place. Um, and they're, so then far from talentless on offense. Uh, that, that is basically the pitch. And I think that's a fairly strong one. Like how many other head coaching jobs do you get to have that, that sort of quarterback, right? Um, from the GM side, it's, it's a little bit harder. I think again, still the biggest, the best thing has going forward is that you already have the franchise quarterback. So that checks off the biggest item on any new GMs to do list normally. Uh, but they don't have any kind of flexibility to make the roster much better moving forward. And, you know, I wrote something about this today. They fired, obviously Brian Gain after one season in which they made a playoff berth. They fired, Bill O'Brien essentially after like one season and four games, that full season also including a playoff berth. And yes, it was a disaster, but if you're a prospective GM or if you're a candidate, what do you think of this job? Right. I mean, Cal McNair has parted ways with two guys on very short notice. And so what's the timeline going to look like for that next person, especially considering how much little flexibility they're going to have to really improve the roster. How, how big of immediate returns is Cal McNair expected? That's the problem. We've talked about this. The team is better now than it probably will be in two years in a lot of ways because of how few resources they have. So if you're looking at this job, you can easily say, oh, well, they made the playoffs with Watson and you know they've been a competitive, relevant team, but they've been a competitive, relevant team with Deshaun Watson, DeAndre Hopkins, and a lot of guys on rookie contracts that are no longer on rookie contracts. So there's a chance this gets worse before it gets better. So I do believe you, I, and I think I agree. The Watson presence and having Tunsil in that core is definitely more attractive than a lot of these jobs are going to be. You know, you go to the Jets and you have a GM in place who's going to be the GM, somebody that you're not going to come in with at the same time. That clearly in the pecking order, you're going to be a little bit lower. You may have a quarterback there that's either on his last legs or somebody you're tied to. So I do think that this job is unlike most job openings that come open. But I also think you have to consider, like you said, the short term, the, the lack of patience that's been there from the top 
and the lack of resources that you have. So it's a push and a pull. I'd still take the job because I think Watson is a fantastic quarterback, and you rarely can luck into that as a first-time head coach. But I also think there are significant drawbacks to this job. No, absolutely. Uh, and and it'll be so it'll be it'll be really fascinating what sort of person they can get. And again, I think uh, you know whether Easterby is around is going to loom really large, or what, what exactly his role is going to be moving forward is going to loom really large over all of this. It's going to be hilarious when Tim Kelly has like four good games and they decide that he's now the head coach. That That's exactly what's going to happen. That, that actually is like one thing I am, uh, you know, I, I think these last 12 games are going to be kind of a, a wash to some degree, but I, I am kind of interested in, in that is like, what if he just is amazing now? And like their offense is just humming. And what you found out is that like Bill O'Brien was just holding him back the whole time. And Tim Kelly doesn't want to run David Johnson up the middle on first down. And in fact, you know, the fact they're like leading the league or one of the leaders in early down fast frequency is like all these things of Tim Kelly coming out. It's going to be a weird couple months. It's certainly been a weird year. There was nothing about the choices that Bill O'Brien was making that made me think this is going to work out, but I still never envisioned this it, it ending this way. I never even considered it to be a possibility. No, and I think I think that's it's totally fair because the thing is the the moves were so bad at the time, right? That it made you wonder how could they need like four games to realize this at this point? Like it was like they're obviously committed to it, or they they still really believe in it. Because if you didn't, if you only halfway believed in it, if you only believed in it enough to stick around with it for four games, then why did you sign off on it in the first place? I just have no idea what the plan was and how you thought this was going to end, or how much time you thought they were going to have to give him. It uh, you go through the timeline of it, and when you try to list off all the things that happened. I've talked about this. You forget some. You forget the Duke Johnson deal. You forget that he traded a third round pick for Gary on Conley, who still hasn't gotten on the field this year. It is there's so much stuff. It's just a wave of nonsense and terrible decisions that inevitably you're gonna forget one, two, or three of them that happened. It it is the most ridiculous and the most misguided collection of choices I have seen a franchise make in a really long time in such a short period. Yeah, it's, it's really remarkable to think just about like who was on this team in 2018 versus now, right? I mean, they had Tyron Matthew, they had Kareem Jackson, they had Jadavion Clowney, um, you know, DeAndre Hopkins, obviously. I mean, like, this, this he where the team was. gave away DeAndre Hopkins for nothing. It, the, the part of the reason they did this, apparently, correct me if I'm wrong, is that they didn't get along. There was a personality clash between DeAndre Hopkins and Bill O'Brien that he didn't want him around. He felt like, Their best path forward was not having DeAndre Hopkins on the roster. And four games into the season after they traded DeAndre Hopkins, they fired the head coach who didn't get along with DeAndre Hopkins. I mean, yeah, that's the easiest way to sum it up, right? And they rationalized it to some degree with with the cap concerns. And and those things were, you know, I think those were legitimate things they were worried about, whether they should have been or not is a different question. But yeah, I mean, obviously, O'Brien's personality played into this. And I I think just in general, you have to think, this personality that's been well documented to wear on people. What? How was it wearing on people when they were zero and four? And he was obviously the one to pinpoint for all of the problems, you know. And, and so, to that sense, I understand why you just cut bait with it now rather than let him play out the season. But it also is just a terrible look that you even let it get to this point that you would fire him after four games. I would ask you what kind of head coach you think they're going to chase, but that's almost impossible to say without knowing who's going to be picking the head coach, right? I mean, you'd think, all right, well, maybe with Watson, they think we need an offensive-minded guy to really bring out the most in the quarterback because that's the only selling point. But 
with Easterby, such a culture person, maybe it's let's bring in the best CEO type to kind of be the culture setter of what we want to be. So I think it's probably hard to pin down exactly the direction that they're going to take here. No, you're right. And, and even if it, it is more schematic focused, right, you still have to consider that Jack is going to be involved in these things, potentially, he's going to be around. And so what are his opinions on these schematic things? Because again, he was at the center of all these things with O'Brien, you know, they chose to value David Johnson the way they did. So that same person who was involved in all those decisions is going to be involved in this. And that's going to have to weigh into what they think is the right fit, even if it, it could again run totally counter to what um, everyone else thinks, you know, they might not like Eric Bannemi. And I, I'm not saying they do or don't. I'm just saying like, we don't really have a sense of what is up or down to them. Bianami would make a ton of sense. Somebody who's worked with a superstar quarterback, somebody who clearly has a history with collaborative kind of decision making when you consider what the tone of that staff in Kansas City has been where they're throwing ideas around. I feel like he would be a really, really good option. We'll see what the other options are by the end of the year. I cannot even believe that we're having this conversation, though. Aaron, thank you very much for the time, buddy. It's always good to talk to you and uh, good luck for the rest of the season. Yeah, we'll see where when I'm back in four weeks, what's happened. <laughs> yeah, when they uh, when they somehow pluck a coach off of a staff mid year, that, that you're gonna have to be back on. All right, sounds good. All right, bud, see ya. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. All right, it's time for this week's team visit. And when I've been trying to pick which team writer I wanted to have on each week, it's almost like picking a survivor pool. You don't want to pick the good teams necessarily because they're going to be relevant by the end. You want to get the teams that may not be in the news for very long during the season. Unfortunately, that leads to picking a lot of teams that aren't playing very well. And the tone of these is typically pretty sad and judgmental. And that's not going to change this week. Chris Burke, who covers the Lions for the Athletic, is here. Chris, how are you? It's a hard sell for Lions fans right there, man. <laughs> really jumping on board. So I don't want to I don't want this to take like a ha ha Matt Patricia tone. I want to actually explore some of this stuff in play here because I think what's going on with the Lions is emblematic of how a lot of teams in the NFL fail. And we're going to get into some of that 
just from the jump here. So the when I, the moment I decided I want to talk about the Lions this week is when Matt Patricia came out after that loss to the Saints, which was they were never in that game. They were up by double digit points and were never in it somehow, which is typical <laughs> of, of, of the Lions game at this point. And he came out and said, when I came to Detroit, there was a lot of work to do. And I was just reading your piece that you wrote this week earlier, and you just said, this isn't working. I think that was your lead. And then you said, you quoted that statement probably in the second graph. I just want to ask you a simple question. You were there during the last year of the Jim Caldwell era. You've covered Matt Patricia's entire tenure in Detroit. Are the Lions in any way better off now than they were when Jim Caldwell was fired after the 2017 season? Uh I really don't know that they are. I mean, I think they're bad in a different way. Like, I, I, I think the Jim Caldwell firing, like you said, that was my first full year covering the Lions, was his last year. And it was pretty apparent by the end of that that they needed to go a different direction. They couldn't beat any good teams. I think six of their seven losses that year were the teams that wound up making the playoffs. They just couldn't get over the top against any of those teams. And then they lost. They still had a chance to make the playoffs and just laid an egg at Cincinnati on Christmas Eve, like 20,000 people in the stands and Caldwell came to his press conference and said something like, well, they just played harder than us. You're like, well, that's, that's it. <laughs> if, they, if you can't outplay the Bengals with the playoffs on the line, you, that's, that's the end of the line. And so I think it made sense for them to make a coaching change, but in theory, the offense is better now than it was then, because I think it's more, the pieces all together are more dynamic, but the the product on the field has not been better anywhere. And, you know, I was talking about that on uh, our Lions podcast just earlier in the day. Like if you go into these games and you sort of line up the Lions defense against pretty much any opposing offense and you say, all right, find the spot where the Lions have an advantage. I don't where I don't know that you can do it. I mean, I don't think there is one anywhere. So. Uh, that's pretty glaring. And I, and I don't know, it's really hard to see them coming out of this after the buy or before it's time to make a big move here. It's pretty amazing how static the development of the, of the roster and the franchise has been during his time, because you had that blip last year where the offense is playing well, they're exciting. They were really exciting offense last year. It kind of snuck up on me. I think it snuck up on a lot of people because they built the offense personnel wise. You know, they have 17 tight ends. It felt like and then you go get Carry on Johnson. It's like, all right, we're going to pound the rock and all of that. And they come out and they're really pushing the ball downfield. It was, I believe, Stafford's highest average depth of target in his entire career. They were a vertical team. And they were one of the most efficient offenses on a per-play basis in the NFL when Matt Stafford was healthy last season. That has come back to earth. They're 22nd in EPA per drop back. And people have asked, EPA is expected points added. If people didn't know that, I probably should explain it. I think it's a good statistical measure that goes beyond the box score and kind of cuts through the noise. And then going beyond the offense, the defense is 31st in EPA per play. And that's where it's just completely unacceptable when you consider the amount of money they've spent on that team and how Matt Patricia has really gotten to shape this unit in his own image after in year three of this entire experiment. So if you were just kind of going through, I know you said talked about the defense, that's probably the answer, but if you were trying to pinpoint the issues with this team, how would you kind of stack them up? Where would you start with where the 2020 Lions are deficient? Yeah, I mean, I think that it does start with the defense, really the front seven for me. I mean, there's a, there's a big picture thing here, and it's sort of what you're touching on. You know, you had three years, they've had three years of Matt Patricia and Bob Quinn to really mold this the way they want it. And they have these just very specific ideas for what they need at every single position. And when they don't have a guy who fits that exact mold, 
they don't really have a plan B. And so you wind up with guys just sort of flailing around out there uh, and not able to perform. So, uh, I mean, I think most of it goes back to that front seven, though. Like I said, they can't stop. They can't stop the run with any consistency. Um, when they've tried to mix it up and find, you know, more exotic ways to do that, they're they're just getting clobbered. Uh, and then they're in a lot of second, third, and shorts. And so you put your secondary in a hole and you don't have anyone to go rush the passer either. So it's kind of all-encompassing on defense, but it really starts up front there. They're just not good in the trenches. They can't get to the quarterback, and that kind of uh, buries you from the start. So it's really on that defense, especially because Matt Patricia came in with the reputation the offensive problems are a lot harder to figure out because you look there and it just seems like they're in pretty good shape. Uh, Stafford did play really well with Daryl Bevel last year. And Kenny Galladay is an emerging number one. TJ Hawkinson, I think, is going to be a star in this league. You got Marvin Jones, and now you add in Swift, and Adrian Peterson's still running well. The line looks okay. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense that it's not more explosive. And uh, you almost wonder if some of that's by design because the defense is so bad. And I think it is. I mean, I think they want to control the clock and and sort of dictate tempo, but they haven't been able to do that either. So <laughs> I don't know where you go for the positive. <laughs> that, that's a very positive spin. I actually really appreciate that. I, finding that reasoning is is pretty impressive. And I think you're right. With Galladay getting back healthy, I have faith that the offense can figure it out. And when I say figure it out, I mean be a top half of the league unit, be a potential top 12 offense, especially passing. Yeah, I think that that's possible and on the table. On the defense, what jumps out to me is the lack of development from the in-house talent. So Matt Patricia is supposed to be this Belichickian savant defensively. If you had to pick out the number one, the best player, the best homegrown Lions player on the defensive side of the ball, who would it be? I guess Tracy Walker. Um, That's probably right. I mean, and even he, you know, he was a guy that they've kind of, they kind of hesitated to throw into the starting lineup at the start of the year for reasons unknown. Um, But, and you know, he's had some trouble covering some tight ends in one-on-one spots this year, but I think he's the answer. I mean, I think he's a, a decent upside, you know, third year guy who can do a lot of different things from the safety spot. But other than that, I mean, you're right. They, Jared Davis, that's a pre-Matt Patricia era draft pick, but I mean, he's the same player now that he was three, four years ago. Um, I mean, I they obviously hope it'll be Jeff Okuda down the line. It's been rocky as it tends to be for rookie cornerbacks, and there really aren't a whole lot of other choices, frankly. I mean, most of the guys that have been homegrown are either getting squeezed out of the lineup or they've gotten rid of or uh, just can't get into the rotation at all. So, it, it's really hard to go beyond Tracy Walker at this point. And I think that's why you also see there, you know, like to their, in their minds, it's almost like Deron Harmon and Danny Shelton and Jamie Collins count as homegrown guys because they came up through that Patriots system, which is so not such nonsense, right? No, <laughs> you're paying a premium for those guys. They're 15th in defensive spending right now. And to be fifth, that doesn't seem like it's high. You're like, Oh, 15th, that's middle of the road. But when you're paying a quarterback 25 to $30 million a year, that's an, and a left tackle. It's, so it's not as if they're cheaping out on the offense. They're spending a lot of money on premium positions offensively, and they're the 15th highest, most expensive defense in the league. That's, and that's where you're running into problems. When you're spending that much on defense, when you're not bottom of the barrel and you're the worst defense or one of the three worst defenses in the league, that's where you're running into problems. So you can say that Jamie Collins and Deron Harmon are homegrown players because they came through this system, but you're paying a premium for those guys in free agency. And I also think the Jared Davis... Benching Jared Davis and Jamie Collins, I think, is really telling. Because when you think about this team, 
they have brought in so many plug and play and market sticker price veterans to play some of these spots. You have Jamie Collins is playing over Jared Davis. Reggie Ragland is playing over Jelani Tavai. Christian Jones is playing over Jelani Tavai. You have second round picks not playing. In the backfield, you draft DeAndre Swift in the second round and Adrian Peterson is your number one running back. And that's fine. Maybe there are issues with identifying talent on this team. But when you're constantly plugging in competent but forgettable veterans in place of the guys that you drafted, you're going to be a competent yet forgettable team. And I think that's exactly where the Lions have found themselves. Well, I think you hit on one of the big problems, which I think the the ability to identify talent is an issue. I think we've seen that time and again, and I think everything sort of gets thrown on on Matt Patricia's plate, but certainly Bob Quinn has a hand in this too. Um, and I think that that's why you end up in some of these spots that you're in. And the other thing is, I mean, you have to give some of these guys an opportunity to go play. I mean, Jelani Tavai exactly. has been in the lineup. Will Harris played last year when he probably shouldn't have been. Uh, they kind of got stuck because they, you know, they traded Quandre Diggs and had some injuries. So they've had some guys that have gotten into the lineup. Jonah Jackson starting for them and has been good up front, but you know, it goes back to my point of this very rigid idea of what every player needs to be able to do at every single position. You know, DeAndre Swift, they don't trust yet as a pass protector, so they won't put him on the field that much. And Julian Okwara can really go rush the passer. He can be that guy that they don't have off the edge, but they're not sure he can hold up out there against the run. So they're trying to find these very specific, like third down spots where they can fire him out there and go after the quarterback. And at some point, you just got to let these guys out there and see what they could do because you're really limiting the impact that those young players can have if you're saying, well, we're only going to be able to use Swift, you know, 12 snaps a game. And Okora, maybe we can use eight or nine times over 60 defensive snaps. And all these all these young guys who maybe need to be out there and just sort of see what you have because you also keep drafting. <laughs> it's the other thing that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, Jamie Collins is a, a freaky athletic guy. But the Lions also keep drafting all these guys that have uh, a decent amount of athleticism, some guys that can get out there and, and go sideline to sideline, and then they keep playing, especially defensively, keep playing these kind of one-note guys who aren't going to help you against a lot of the teams that you're facing. And I think that's why you see, you know, you see the Saints tear them apart and the Packers and the Vikings have been a huge problem for them. They just don't have defenders who can react to some of these things and don't have the recovery athleticism when they're in trouble. And uh, some of those guys that might be able to help you are sitting on the bench because they aren't quite up to the standards that Matt Patricia has for certain positions. So if you look at some of the numbers here, Matt Patricia is blitzing on 18% of plays, which is, I think, the third lowest rate in the entire league. They're getting pressure on 18.8% of dropbacks. This is all according to Pro Football Reference, which is the fourth lowest rate in the league. They play at least last year, the numbers aren't out this year in a lot of places. They played as much man coverage as any other team in the NFL. Has Matt Patricia articulated to you guys what the thought process is behind not blitzing, not having a pass rush, and using man coverage higher than anyone in the league, and if it's not working, why you wouldn't change it? (laughs) Well, it's interesting because they will mix it up. Against the Cardinals two weeks ago, they played, it wasn't quite 50-50, but it was a lot more zone. And the def- that was the best the defense has played all year. And some of that is that, you know, you're facing Kyler Murray, who we all know is an exciting quarterback. He's going to be really good, but there's a difference between, you know, getting Aaron Rodgers or Drew Brees and getting Kyler Murray just in terms of 
you know, what you can throw at them from, from coverage perspective. But it's also hard to play man against Kyler because you're so worried about him running. So I'm sure that's part of the motivation there. His running ability almost forced them to play zone, and it worked. And they go back to the Packers, <laughs> and they play man. And they go to the Saints, and they played, you know, 65 70% man. And um, the thing with the pass rush, this is – the pass rush has been maybe the most frustrating – element of their team for fans and the hardest to figure just watching them and trying to piece together what they're doing uh, from a personnel perspective, because in a lot of ways, Matt Patricia doesn't, I don't want to say he doesn't care about a pass rush, but it's very low priority for him. He wants to sort of maintain the gap integrity up front more than anything. Even if you're not facing a running quarterback, he wants to make sure that the quarterback has to sit in the pocket and try to make a throw. And if you don't get there, that's fine. Just don't let him take off. And I, like I said, I think against Kyler Murray, that works because you wind up playing zone. You wind up sitting guys back. You can't do that against Aaron Rodgers. Can't sit in the pocket for six seconds. <laughs> He's going to kill. Oh, he you. certainly He's can. It's just not going to go well for you. <laughs> right. And, uh, and so I think there's this really bizarre, uh, really bizarre preference they have for finding guys who can, you know, his favorite buzzword is, is, that he wants to be multiple on defense and pretty much everyone they bring in up front, Julian Alcora, maybe being the exception, if they'd ever let him play are guys that are going to be pretty good against the run can move inside or outside, depending on how many defensive linemen you have in there. Uh, and occasionally you'll get to the quarterback, but it's not their primary focus. I don't know. They don't have a really good pass rusher, even Trey flowers. He's a guy who will get to the quarterback, but his value to them is that they can bump him in and play him over the nose on passing downs and then put him back outside and he can hold the edge against the run. That's his value. That's why they're paying him what they're paying him. And so they don't care as much about a pass rush as they do just trying to lock up in the secondary. Um, but if you can't, can't lock up in the secondary either. and you can't get to the quarterback, you know, you're going to have a lot of rough days. And I think we've seen that play out. So it just feels like this is probably headed for a rough end. My assumption. I mean, do you think about Jim Caldwell had the best winning percentage of any Lions head coach that played coached more than one season since 1972. He's the only one with an above 500 record, which it's great that they ran him out of town. They went 11 and five, seven and nine, nine and seven and nine and seven under Jim Caldwell and he got fired. Matt Patricia is about to have a three win season and then now they're one and three. It feels like he's running out of road. So let's say Matt Patricia does is not the coach by the end of the year. What happens now? What ha do you think Bob Quinn is somebody they want to stick with long term? It, it, in a lot of ways, the roster they're locked into because of how many contracts they handed out last year. Vitae, Justin Coleman, Trey Flowers, Jamie Collins, even Marcus Tr or Desmond Trufant. These are guys that have money on their deals after this year. So let's say they do move on. What's the exit strategy for this team? Is there any way you think Matthew Stafford isn't on this team next year? How do you see kind of the next 18 months playing out? This is where it gets really hard because I think from even before they fired Jim Caldwell and it seemed like Matt Patricia might be a possibility, Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia have kind of been tied together through this thing. And that maybe slows the process down here because I don't know that you can fire one without the other. I don't think Quinn's going to fire Patricia in the middle of the season without getting removed himself. And you've got uh, Sheila Ford Hamp just took over as principal owner a few months ago. We don't really know how she's going to deal with this. She's got her, you know, her right hand man, the team president, Rod Wood, is 
primarily on the business side of things. I mean, he'll help with the football decisions, but he's not a guy with a football background. Last time they made a, a, a hire, a big hire, the NFL you know, sent Ernie Accorsi to help him with the process. So I don't even know who in that ownership group is really helping with this decision. Who's going to lay down, you know, put their foot down and make the call on this because it feels like if you're going to get rid of Patricia or Quinn, you have to get rid of both. And then you've got to clean a lot of the coaching staff out. You got to clean a lot of the scouts out and everything top to bottom and really go back to square one. So I do think that that, you know, that that certainly throws into questions Matthew Stafford's future. Um, it seems to come up every year when the Lions fall out of playoff contention. And, you know, this year especially, he's not playing great. He's had a couple injuries. He's now into his 30s. His cap number next year is like $33 million, I think, if they don't um, redo that contract. So I don't think, you know, I still don't think you can really move on from him until there's a plan after him, which they don't have anything close to that right now. I mean, if you move on from him, you don't have a quarterback, basically. So uh, I still think that there's enough upside there when we've seen Matthew Stafford play well enough um, that you could still sort of tie everything to him moving forward. I think it'd be a selling point as you're talking about bringing in a GM and coach to say, here, you can start with everything we have on offense. But uh, I don't know how they got this in the next 12 to 18 months because it feels like it's either just stay the course and pray or tear the whole thing apart and start over. And that seems difficult because of how much they've spent and because of how entrenched they are in this version of the roster. By letting Quinn and especially Patricia kind of, again, make the roster in their image and say, this is the prototype of players that I need. This is the collection of talent that I need to do what I want to do. And then when they, what he wants to do doesn't work out, this is what you're left with. It's funny. I was looking at Matthew Stafford's spot track page. And he has a $10 million roster bonus due on the third day of the league year next year. You know what's never a good sign? When you're looking at the contract page for a quarterback. You never looked at <laughs> you never look at the contract details for a good quarterback. It's only guys you're like, man, when can they trade him or move on? So anytime you're accessing one of those pages, it's typically a bad sign. And I'd probably say that's true for Stafford. I, th- I think you're right. I think the selling point is probably what they can do with the offense. But at the same time, Kenny Galladay is a free agent next year. Yeah. What incentive does Kenny Galladay have to stay there now? That's the problem is any homegrown talent they seem to find, the guys just leave. Graham Glasgow was a pretty good player. You find him in the third round. He can play a couple of different positions. He's somebody that's been solid for you for a couple of years. He's gone. Kenny Galladay is one of the best, most, most explosive vertical threats probably in the entire NFL when you consider some of the numbers and the contested catch rate and everything else. He's a free agent. I don't understand why he'd want to be there when you consider how messy it's been. So in talking about the ownership group, it really does feel like this is an organizational concern. And I don't think it's a surprise that we've seen very few people succeed there. And I think that's fair. And I think that's why, you know, this is, it's a very big moment for this ownership group. You know, like I said, this will be the first time that we really see what this is like with a new principal owner. If it's going to just feel the same way as it has with the Fords in charge time and again, where... You make a kind of a splashy move now, and then three, four years from now, we're having these same conversations. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. This they have to figure out some way forward. It's it's it is difficult. You're right, especially on defense. I mean, I think offensively, again, a lot of that stuff can translate. And I, you know, even if you want to, maybe you even bring back Daryl Bevel as your offensive coordinator. I mean, I think a lot of the the talent they have there. It's the problem we ran into with the Jim Bob Cooter thing, though. It's just you keep kicking this (laughs) can down the road. It's like, let's salvage this 
okay version of the offense we have. In the moment, I actually supported that choice, but it's just so funny how we play the same note over and over again here. Yeah, and and I think at some point that's you've got to ask those questions with Stafford too. You know, he's looking at I've lost track of how many offensive coordinators he has now, but like six or seven. And you know, at some point you have to start asking if there is a coordinator where this is really going to take off beyond what it's been. Um, and like I said, it'll be 33 next year. I'll have a $33 million cap hit. So yeah, you've got to make some decisions there. And then defensively, it is problematic. I mean, I think there are guys that you could shift over out of this Patricia system and they would work, but certainly not. There's certainly not a full starting 11. There's not 25 of them that you're going to go down the depth chart and just pick guys and say, all right, well, they we need him to be part of our future here. They just don't have that. So it, it's going to be really tricky for the next uh, group coming in if they do make a move because so much of this has gone into changing things away from what Jim Caldwell have had to what Matt Patricia wanted. And now you're kind of stuck in the middle with, with no real uh, path forward. It, the Jim Caldwell stuff, and a lot of people have mentioned it this week. I know Dan Orlovsky was talking about it. He was there, you know, during the end of the during the Jim Caldwell era, I believe. Jim Caldwell is not an exciting person. I don't think we all understand that. I mean, I've seen Madame Tussauds wax figures with more presence than Jim Caldwell, <laughs> but Jim, I think that Jim Caldwell was a competent NFL head coach, and you saw what he did. This team was average under Jim Caldwell, and when you're average a lot, sometimes you just need a couple things to put you over the top. And you said they probably did need a change. But I think it's just so telling that you look at some of the numbers during those years. Terrell Austin was the defensive coordinator for a chunk of that time. They were fine. They were fine defense. In 2016, they were 31st in defensive BBOA. That was the one major blip. Do you know what the pa- the Patriots ranked in Matt Patricia's last year there as the defensive coordinator in DBOA? 31st. <laughs> Terrell Austin got fired. He no longer gets to be a defensive coordinator. He's the secondary coach in Pittsburgh, which is a pretty good defense, by the way. And Matt Patricia got a head coaching job. So... It's always funny how these decisions get made. It never ceases to amaze me. Chris, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate the insight. I know this is depressing stuff that you probably don't want to talk about anymore, but sometimes you got to really dig into it, and that's where we are now. (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Chris. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening today. Thank you to Aaron. Thank you to Chris Burke for talking about the Lions. Thank you very much to ESPN's Mina Kimes for coming out and talking about the NFC. We will be back tomorrow with Lindsey Jones to preview all things week five. Until then, if you could do me a favor, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And please subscribe to The Athletic. Go to theathletic.com slash football show. Our $1 special is still going. I promise you it is worth it and you will not regret it. But for now, I'm out of here. Thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you guys later. This was The Athletic Football Show.